I'm feeling a lot of happiness sitting here and seeing you knowing what you're doing. A lot of delight. Even if it may not feel delightful to you, (laughs) there's a deep, deep appreciation and joy that you are here. We've said a lot that this is not easy. This uh, commitment to watching our minds see what's happening, how our conditioning plays out, the patterns and habits of mind, orienting, attuning to the impermanent nature of experience. Sometimes practice is delightful. When we see something clearly, or at times when we settle back and mindfulness is just right there, easily seeing phenomenon come and go. Sometimes it's joyful. Some of that joy is because in those moments the mind has that measure of freedom, those moments of temporary nibbana that Greg mentioned, absence of largely absent of greed and aversion in any case, and maybe greatly weakened delusion. It's a very happiness-producing state there. And yet, as the practice deepens, as we start to see our minds more thoroughly, kind of settle below the the story level, the narrative of our particular lives, and we start to meet the ways our minds as humans just really sometimes just don't want to see the truths of impermanent, unreliable, not-self just don't want to see that. It can be very unsettling to begin to taste the deeply impermanent nature of experience. And yet this is the path for us as we start to see the deeply impermanent nature of experience. The resistance to that what arises around that. Basically, you know, the feeling of just wanting there to be somewhere to stop, you know, somewhere to land. Please, you know, can't we just stop for a moment? Can I just rest somewhere? The, The deeply impermanent nature of experience sometimes points out that there's nowhere to land. 
groundlessness. And so the, the path unfolds through noticing you know, how we're relating to that. Kind of points out where the deeper levels of human clinging are, are happening. So we've talked a lot about impermanence and its connection to understanding the unreliable, the dukkha nature of experience and the not-self nature of experience. The Buddha pointed so much to the teaching of impermanence over and over again. he, He encouraged us to cultivate the perception of impermanence in many ways, different, different places. In the Satipatthana Sutta, in that refrain that we talked about earlier in the retreat, there's an encouragement with each of the foundations, with each of the exercises, to notice the impermanent nature of the experience. One abides observing in the body its nature of arising, or abides observing in the body its nature of vanishing, or abides observing in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing. And the, in a, a few sentences later in that refrain, it says, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. Kind of a connection between understanding impermanence and the release from clinging. Well, this happens because seeing the impermanent nature of experience, our mind directly sees, understands that there's nothing to cling to and that clinging will just produce stress, suffering in the mind. It directly understands seeing that impermanent nature of experience that it is unreliable it is not a place where I could land and say I'll be happy here because it's just going to slip away there's the understanding of not self the sense of self often being felt as a thing something stable And the seeing of the impermanent nature of all experience reveals that what we take to be self is not what we think it is. In one sutta, the Buddha more thoroughly emphasizes seeing the impermanent nature of experience, and it's a teaching around the aggregates. And I'm going to condense this here into a fairly short paragraph. Seeing clearly that form, feeling tone, perception, mental formations, consciousness are impermanent. One experiences disenchantment. Experiencing disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. So, 
Annie said she brought these words in before, disenchantment and dispassion. I'd like to explore the process around what this part of the suttas is describing, what happens in this part of the process, the seeing impermanence deeply, one becomes disenchanted. Becoming disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. So kind of unpack or explore a little bit this place, what can happen here. So disenchantment is a translation of the Pali word nibida. And it, it comes, this disenchantment comes with a thorough understanding that the ways that we usually engage in the world just don't lead to happiness. We see that the habit of clinging is based on an illusion or a misperception that there is something stable to cling to, something solid or stable to to land on and, and hold on to. So the seeing of the impermanence helps us see that the idea that I'll find happiness with the clinging is a mistake. It's a misperception. It's an illusion. We become disillusioned, disenchanted with the idea that clinging and craving are going to somehow make me happy, do it for me. So we see essentially through this deep connection with seeing, the directly seeing the impermanent nature of experience. This is not talking about an idea of impermanence. This is talking about the direct experience of impermanence. Seeing, for instance, the arising and passing of sensation, sound, thoughts. And sometimes this experience of impermanence becomes quite um, strong. It becomes very um, rapid. So we're really directly experiencing the, the incredibly rapid nature of the arising and passing of experience. Sometimes seeing the arisings mostly, sometimes seeing the vanishings, sometimes seeing the arisings and vanishings as that sutta pointed to the Satipatthana Sutta, one observes the body in its nature of arising, in its nature of vanishing, or its nature of both arising and vanishing. We can see impermanence in all of these ways. And seeing that, when we see the arising of experience, we understand that it's coming into being as a conditioned phenomenon. It wasn't there before and now it's here. So we understand that it has been conditioned. 
We see the vanishing of it. We understand. Sometimes when I saw, began really seeing things vanish, I understood the mind actually believed its permanence. It was like shocking when it went away because there was a way that the mind had kind of, you know, latched onto it and created the idea about it and, and thought of it as stable somehow and then it's gone and it's like, whoa, what happened? So these the seeing of impermanence at this level deeply undercuts this this misperception, these these ideas. We've been enchanted by the ideas of there being things out there, there being a, a sense of self. And so this this enchantment becomes revealed as a mistake, essentially. So we see we've been caught in the spell of delusion, enchanted by delusion. And sometimes we feel this too in our relationship with, even with dukkha, even with, you know, senses of self that we know are not so helpful. I was talking to one, someone, some, one of you the other day and, and the image of, of like, feels like a comfortable old shoe, this habit, this pattern. You know, it just feels so familiar. The mind gravitates towards that familiar. Even as we see that it's not so helpful. So knowing that we're caught by that spell is like the first step. Yep in this old shoe of the sense of me and I know it's just I know it's an illusion we can know that but still not be able to convince ourselves to not be there just noticing the nature of that experience knowing that it is a misunderstanding that's where it begins to see through this the delusion. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, the um, monk scholar, practitioner who offered us recent translations of the suttas, a really amazing gift he offered us, putting all of the suttas into more accessible language for us. He had this to say, about the experience of disenchantment. He often wrote uh, like commentarial descriptions around various suttas, and around one of the suttas that describes this word disenchantment, he wrote, Nibida, which is the Pali, Nibida signifies in short, the serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomena, which supervenes when the illusion of their permanent, pleasurable, and selfhood has been shattered by the light of correct knowledge and visions, vision of things as they are. A serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomenon is how he terms this disenchantment. Well, I would say that is the, in my experience at least, in this terrain of seeing how the mind is enchanted and is becoming disenchanted, the process of becoming disenchanted 
doesn't feel as pleasant as this describes. <laughs> Maybe this, this is the end, you know, when the mind has thoroughly uh, understood, you know, this is the experience, that withdrawal from um, things that, it's like, you know, something is, it's not worth my time. <laughs> There's an image in the suttas about um, describing this quality of a dog with a bone that has no nourishment left in it at all. And the marrow is gone. There's no, it's, it's such an old dry bone that the dog like looks at it and like looks like it's useful, looks like it would be you know, something good there, but he picks it up and it's like, yeah, no, nothing there for me. Just that withdrawal from, there's no nourishment in this anymore. That's kind of where the, the disenchantment maybe has, uh, has thoroughly penetrated but the process, I would say, the process of becoming disenchanted has a lot more ups and downs to it. So essentially, as we start to see the uh, deeply unreliable nature of experience, our minds do not like this We would rather it be any other way. We try to bargain with reality. We try to figure out some way to construct a little pile of something that I can land on. So there are a lot of emotional flavors in the relationship to deeply seeing the impermanent, unreliable nature of experience. I think this is actually, you know, basically revealing the deeper human forms of clinging to wanting things to be stable. And there's different kind of relationships that we may experience as the mind begins to grapple with the fact that we, it's not the way we'd like it to be. Reality is not what we'd like. Getting what we'd like, I mean, we can, we can do that. We can be on that cycle of, oh, I'll just get something I want and be happy for a split second or two. And then, then there's the dissatisfaction and where did I, you know, can I get something else I want? But we just see the, the uselessness of that. It doesn't stop us, even seeing the uselessness of it, it doesn't stop us from keeping trying. Well, maybe, maybe there's, maybe there's something I can land on here. At one point in my long retreat, I think I was at the forest refuge, I watched the mind do this over and over again. You know, at, 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 in this, at this point, the mind was... The, 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 the wisdom was strong enough to know it was not going to find anything to land on. You know, no place solid or stable to land on to say, oh, I can rest here. I can, I can finally just be okay with this experience. 
and I could I could see that it would like the, the mind, but the mind just kept going into this loop. Like there's got to be somewhere, got to be somewhere to land, somewhere to land, somewhere to land, and and it, it, my my mind was okay with it doing that. It was just like oh yeah, yeah, you're you're welcome to look. You're not going to find anything. Just have at it. <laughs> Try you know because I couldn't stop it. It was not self. You know it was it was a deep conditioned. Um, you know, human wish for there to be somewhere I could s- settle and be stable, and so I couldn't. I couldn't stop it, but I could see that it was a, f- a futile process. But there would be times where the, the the mind would kind of let go of that, you know, let go of that searching, and there would just be this like okayness with the not landing, okayness with. Things as they are, impermanent, unreliable, not self. This okayness with that. And there would be a, such a release and a feeling of ease. And three seconds later, the mind was at it again. I just watched it over and over again. So this process of disenchantment, it's, it's meeting our very, very, very deep conditioning. Seeing it once or twice is probably not going to do it. It's a... It's a process of seeing and understanding the relationships. I think that in seeing the impermanent nature of experience, many different relationships we may have to seeing impermanence. So a few of those flavors. One of them is this experience of nibida, which is sometimes translated as disgust or revulsion. It's not... I, I don't particularly like that translation. <laughs> I much prefer disenchantment. But sometimes the emotional flavor of seeing impermanence at this level can be a feeling of... Oh, just It can feel that way. It can feel like revulsion just don't want to see that or or what how you might feel for instance um, if you see something dangerous and you know that way is really dangerous like seeing a snake or something there's a kind of a recoiling that we have if we see um, a rattlesnake for instance just like the, the, the body, the being, will just pull back and recoil from it. And that's, it's like out of a sense of danger, but there can be a feeling of, of, of like revulsion, like don't go there. So this quality, it can have that flavor. That's not the most common flavor that I've experienced, but occasionally that has come up. That feeling of just, oh, with being impinged on by sense impressions, this continual impingement of changing sense experience. Sometimes the the relationship to seeing um, the impermanent nature of experience can be... um, a feeling of oppression. There have been times where I've been sitting and just feeling like it's just so much sensation 
body sensation, seeing, hearing. It's like chaotic experience of the being experiencing all the sense impressions and just the wish for it to stop. You know, just, oh, this is too much. It's just, it's like a sound feels like a screaming pain. A thought feels like glass going through the mind. Just sometimes it just feels so intense. Sense impressions. Again, this is not the most common way that I've experienced it, but there are times when it feels very oppressive. It can also bring up feelings of fear, as strong as even terror sometimes, to see how rapidly things are changing. Just the feeling of there's nowhere, there's nowhere to land. Just that, that sense of things changing so rapidly. Fear can be a relationship that happens there. Some of the um, easier ones, the more tolerant, tolerable ones, are, are a feeling of like homesickness. Um, so my teacher Sayadaw Ujanaka pointed to this one, that the, the homesickness is kind of like the feeling of wishing you could be go back to that that delusion. You know, it's like homesickness for delusion. But you can't go back because there's enough clarity in the mind that the only way through is forward to seeing this impermanent nature of experience. Sometimes, as the impermanent nature of experience and the kind of changing nature of experience begins to get a little bit more um, familiar or maybe a little bit, um, you know, maybe have, have let go of or, or seen that the terror, the fear are... We, we are, the encouragement here in this place is to notice. So you're noticing impermanence and notice the relationship to it. That's the basic instruction. The practice deepens by noticing the relationship to what is happening. Because the relationship to the impermanence is, is revealing different kinds of clinging. Different levels and layers of clinging. And so at a, at a, at a deeper level or of, of clinging, sometimes the impermanent nature of experience just starts to feel really boring. It's like, yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> just, just really boring. And the mind just gets disinterested in, in like, yeah, it's another sense impression. Yep, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. Yep, yep, know that, yep. The mind just gets bored with it or disinterested. These are other flavors of the relationship to impermanence. Really important to notice these. Sometimes for me, it's felt like, you know, I'm done. I'm done practicing. You know, this is, I don't want to practice anymore. It's like, yeah, just don't want to practice. And I first noticing that experience, you know, feeling of not wanting to practice. First I kind of felt betrayed by my mind. And I thought I had to stop 
not wanting to practice. Stop the, stop the belief of not wanting to practice. I thought I had to stop that or transfer, transform that belief into wanting to practice. And then I actually heard somebody report. We, I was with Sayuru Ujjanaka. And um, the person before me was experiencing things a little ahead of me in the practice. So it was always really... Um, in, you know, inspiring to hear what was happening in, in, in her practice and how she was reporting her experience. And one time she, um, she described, yes, not wanting to practice arose. And I noted it. I was like, you can do that? <laughs> it was like eye-opening for me. So yes, you can do that. <laughs> You don't have to convert not wanting into wanting, not wanting to practice into somehow believing that you don't, that that's not there. You can just know that's there. And you're back in the practice. Yeah, not wanting to practice. So there are many relationships that unfold as we meet as we meet the deep experience of impermanence. And just when you start to see perhaps some of these flavors of the relationship, know them. Name, be aware of them. Recognize there's this sense of impermanent experience and there's confusion and there's fear and there's boredom, disinterest, not wanting to practice. Know the relationship to the experience. Knowing that relationship is what helps the mind to let go of it, to free, to become free from that. We've been talking about this all along. As soon as we attend to something that is a form of greed, aversion, or delusion, the conditions of mindfulness weaken that. So this is the, this is the medicine. Noticing the relationship. And, and also I'd say, just recognizing that, again, this, this, is, the, this is the terrain of practice this terrain of the, you know, becoming disenchanted is the terrain of practice where it, it doesn't necessarily feel very pleasant. And yet, it is the deepening of the practice. So there are times, there are times when the deepening of practice is not pleasant. A little bit of a shock. You know, we don't put that in the brochure. I don't think we have a brochure. <laughs> so as the mind begins to let go and to have the understanding that it is not worth clinging, the mind moves through that disenchantment to that withdrawal, to that withdrawal from... Um, but the withdrawal is a funny word. That's, this is what Bhikkhu Bodhi termed it as a serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomenon. But it's a withdrawal from clinging. And that's where we get entangled. You know, the, the, the clinging is what ties us or tangles us to objects. 
what happens in, in, as the clinging falls away is that there's objects in the knowing and there's just no tang- entanglement with it. But it does not necessarily feel like withdrawn, in my experience. It can feel very intimate. In fact, even more intimate than being tangled with it. Because the tangle, the greed, the aversion, the confusion, obscures some of the experience. So the falling away of clinging is a withdrawal from the, the clinging. I mean, the, the disenchantment is a withdrawal from the clinging. The experience can be very intimate when the clinging has fallen away. So as that happens, the mind moves towards what's termed dispassion here. The Pali term for this is viraga. So here in this place, basically, the mind has thoroughly understood that holding on to impermanent changing phenomenon makes no sense. The literal polyliteral definition or the the word viraga literally means to fade out. I like I like that the word it's it's basically it's a word that would be used um, about a piece of cloth that has been dyed a particular color and it is set in the sun washed, set in the sun, washed, set in the sun. The color fades out gradually over time. So this to me, this term, viraga, for dispassion, speaks, even the use of the word here, speaks to the gradual nature of the process. It's a slow process of the way the mind begins to let go. Let go of clinging. And over the course of practice, we may experience kind of deeper levels of letting go. The fading out is kind of like the deepening of how the mind lets go of certain layers or levels of of clinging. So at first, the, the, the first levels or layers of clinging might be the way the mind understands that attachment to sense pleasure is not not really going to make me happy. We, we, we gain that understanding. and um, the, the major kind of craving and aversion around sense pleasure may begin to strong, you know, get a lot weaker. Many of you have probably noticed this over the course of your practice, how certain kinds of reactivity that had been so familiar are no longer quite so strong. Some of you have reported this on the retreat, too. You know, things that happened earlier on, you know, you're now noticing that that reactivity isn't arising anymore. This is the kind of the, the fading out. Those, those kind of, of reactions are not happening 
And so the first kind of level of fading happens often around the major things, the major habits and patterns, the main kind of ways in which our minds have habitually oriented towards finding happiness in various ways. So that first that first level might be, you know, you kind of deepen through a um, craving around sense pleasure. And then and then we start to find we're craving around the practice. You know, we want those states of concentration. We want that peace. We want that ease. We want to see things really clearly. And so this is, you know, attachment another level of attachment. It, and, and possibly that, I think I mentioned this a couple of days ago in the morning, the way you know, we may have to, you know, the mind may cling to the practice, it may cling to states of concentration as a support for letting go of greater uh, reactivity. But at some point we start to see that attachment, that clinging. And then that begins to weaken. That begins to fade out. So this experience of the fading out of clinging can come and go. It's gradual nature of it. There may be times when the mind is so clear and it's just so obvious that picking things up and holding on to them is creating suffering. And and the mind just won't go there. You know, it's like you can even think of things that you, you, you might want and it's like, nah. <laughs> just It just doesn't go there. It doesn't want to pick them up. And then, ten minutes later, there we are, picking it up again. This is how it works. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, just, it's so deeply conditioned. We get to see moments of clarity like that. And then we get to see the mind get hooked again. It's noticing, it's, well, it's caught again. Explore the possibility of not judging that. Like, you know, there's, a, there's periods of time, I'm maybe the first few years of practice, where it's like, I've seen this already. Why do I have to see it again? And at this point, it's like, oh, yeah, there it is again. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it keeps happening. And yet, what I've seen in, in my own experience is that the belief or the well, it's not, only, it's not only easier because I'm not reacting to the fact that it's coming up again. That's, that's huge. It's like, well, what a relief that I, there's not that extra level of, of suffering around habits and patterns re-arising. But there's also the understanding that there's something more to learn here. There's still clinging. There's still craving. I'm glad that this is arising because I get to see the clinging and craving again. And the, the being with it helps to weaken it. So much easier when there's not that sense that it's a problem that this thing is arising.
So the dispassion has this fading out kind of process. There may be like disenchantment and dispassion and then maybe we're back in being enchanted and disenchantment, a little bit of a sense of that dispassion of the mind like just releasing the clinging and the clinging just dropping away. There's another aspect of dispassion that feels like freedom. Freedom is not about getting anything. One definition of freedom. This is the peaceful. This is the sublime. That is the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. So in this, dispassion is used as a, a synonym for nibbana, mind having let go. Greg also mentioned another definition of nibbana that we've mentioned before, the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion, or we could say the non-arising of greed, the non-arising of aversion, the non-arising of delusion. And so another way to experience or understand dispassion is as the non-arising of craving, the non-arising of greed, aversion, and delusion. the experience of release that we have when the mind lets go. There's a kind of a a delight to that. It feels good when the mind lets go. We feel the, the release from a vice grip. And that is, is in, you know, that's the mind moving towards dispassion, that release. And yet... The release itself, that that experience of release, is it's 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 something. It's, I don't know. It's 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 beautiful. It's 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 sweet in a way, and yet the deeper form of release is that there's nothing left to release the mind just doesn't even pick things up to hold on to them anymore. So you might get a, a flavor of this, a, a little, try to feel, feel into this a little bit. Like, think back to childhood and did you have a favorite game or toy or something? You know, maybe just remember favorite toy. And I had a big teddy bear that was about the size of me. It was my favorite thing. I carried it everywhere, like had no fur left. Both eyes were gone. And um, yeah, I was very attached to it. And over time, 
you know, you age, you grow up, you don't need that teddy bear anymore. You don't need whatever your favorite toy was anymore. Maybe you go back to it every now and then, but, you know, kind of find it's not satisfying you the way it used to. You, 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 you lose your interest in it. You lose your dependence on it. So this, you know, we lose interest in it. That, that disinterest flavor there is kind of the stage, what we might say is in the, in the analogy to disenchantment. It's losing interest in that. And then dispassion, like as an adult, like when was the last time you thought about that toy? I mean, I didn't even think about this until just now, this, this teddy bear. It's like the, the mind just doesn't even think of picking this up anymore. There's no interest or disinterest. There's, there's no interest or disinterest around this, this toy to arise this is the flavor of dispassion. There's no movement to pick up things to hold to. And the practice deepens by seeing the ways in which we're enchanted, to be present for how we're enchanted to see how we hold, to notice those relationships, feel that fear of loss, feel the disinterest, the boredom, all of those relationships. The practice leads through seeing how we've been enchanted. Bhikkhu Bodhi writes about realizing freedom He uses the language realizing the unconditioned. This is a a term, the unconditioned, the mind free from greed, aversion, and delusion. Tastes a state that is a state, it's not a state taste this flavor of the unconditioned. So here's how Bhikkhu Bodhi describes this. Though the realization of the unconditioned requires a turning away from the conditioned, it must be emphasized that this realization is achieved precisely through the understanding of the conditioned. Nibbana cannot be reached by backing off from a direct confrontation with samsara to lose oneself in a blissful oblivion to the world. The path to liberation is a path of understanding, of comprehension, and transcendence, not of escapism or emotional self-indulgence. Nibbana can only be attained by turning one's gaze towards samsara and scrutinizing it on all its darkness. The understanding of the conditioned is the way to the unconditioned. So this description of freedom in the suttas, in many places in the suttas, is primarily described by what it's not. 
this freedom, this unconditioned non-clinging, the ending of craving, the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. It's nothing to pick up or own. There isn't any picking up or owning here. It's the non-arising. There's a sutta that describes, it's um, in this, Sutta Nipata, it describes, someone has asked the Buddha to describe what a liberated person is like. And here's how the Buddha responds. Well, first it's the question. The questioner says, having what vision, being of what character, is one called peaceful? Tell me about the supreme person. The Buddha responds, a person who is not angered, not frightened, not boastful, not fretful, who gives wise advice, who is calm, restrained in speech, who is indeed a sage, a person who is not attached to the future, who does not sorrow over the past, who finds solitude amidst sense contact and is not guided by fixed views, a person who is retiring, not deceitful, not covetous, not greedy, not impudent, not arousing contempt, who does not engage in malicious speech, a person who does not relish pleasure, who is not arrogant, who is mild and of ready wit, who is not credulous, who by nothing is repelled, a person who does not take on the training in hopes of material gain, who is unperturbed if they get nothing, who is not hampered by wishes and not greedy for flavors, a person who is even-tempered, ever-attentive, who does not suppose that they in the world are equal, superior, or inferior, who is free of conceit, a person for whom there are no tethers, who knowing truth is not tethered in any way, and in whom no wishes are found for existence or non-existence. This is someone I call peaceful. Most of that description is what they are not. So it, it's interesting to me that This, this Im- image of someone free from greed, aversion, and delusion. What is that? What does that evoke for you? I mean, this is someone who, would, who could be completely free. Someone who's these words that the Buddha d- describes. Free from greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, there's a lot of room for different Actions arising. I think we sometimes have this idea that being dispassionate, I mean, even the word dispassion makes it sound like, you know, don't care almost. But free from greed, aversion, and delusion doesn't mean we lack feeling or action. I mean, I think part of the issue here around, around this idea that somehow being free, this description of free from greed, aversion, and delusion, would be kind of a b- boring place to be, maybe. Or like there was a question in the bowl the other day about did, this, did the Buddha sing or dance or 
you know, laugh. And I don't know, you know, I have no idea. But I think that question is based in perhaps this idea that what, what it sounds like we're talking about here sounds like it would be very flat. Freedom may sound like it would be very flat, you know, completely chilled out, not, not, not uh, non-reactive in a way, you know, that it just sounds flat. And I think that's partly because our, the vast majority of our lives have been guided by greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, the, we, we, we've, when greed, aversion, and delusion are running the show, get what you want, you'll be happy. Get rid of what you don't want, you'll be happy. You know, when they're running the show, they cannot fathom there's another way to live. Those, those qualities of mind just cannot even... They, there's no, they do not have the imagination to understand that... Like greed, for instance, does not have the imagination to understand if greed goes away, the problem goes away. If greed goes away, this, the suffering goes away. So these, these habits or ways that we've typically lived our lives, you know... Greed, aversion, and delusion think experience would be very flat without us. They cannot fathom a life with love, compassion, joy, equanimity running the show. We've said this before, but compassion acts, wisdom acts. Love acts in the world. Without greed, aversion, and delusion, you know, there's, there's 68 different possible, in this room, you know, all of us, a different possible expression of freedom based on how, greed, how, how you know, Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion manifest in us. Love, wisdom, compassion, how they manifest in us. I've met some amazing people up in the hills of Saigon, Saigon and Burma, and they're very different, you know. One guy, very calm, just want to sit quietly in his presence. Another guy laughs all day. A lot of room for different expressions of freedom. What might be your expression of freedom? What might you be like without greed, aversion, and delusion? Don't limit yourself to some idea (laughs) that you think it's flat. So dispassion, you know, sounds like flat or, you know, why would I want dispassion? But it's dispassion around the habitual ways in which we've clung to things. Am I no longer clinging? The absence of craving for the world doesn't mean an absence of feeling. And there's a huge heart that resonates 
in empathy with the world. With greed, aversion, and delusion, that heart is limited without it. It's vast. Let's sit for a moment. I bow to your practice. Carry on. Keep going. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.